From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is data governance, and more specifically, how to balance data governance with data collection of non-personalized data, and then open it up for citizens, businesses, and or government use. This is a global challenge. Currently, as more people go online, they stop having control over their data. Two words for you. Data commons. My guest is Parminder Singh, the executive director of IT for Change. His expertise is IT for development, internet governance, e-governance, and the digital economy. He has worked extensively with a number of United Nations groups, including the Internet Governance Forum and the Global Alliance for Information and Communication Technologies and Development. Parminder is part of the Government of India's Committee on Non-Personal Data Governance Framework, which has come out with recommendations for a law on this subject. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with the Midir Network. Welcome, Parminder. Thank you, Laurel. So, IT for Change is based in India, but your focus is really how technology can improve humanity globally, or at least not harm people. This is certainly a different perspective than the typical Silicon Valley startup ethos, right? Yes. We want digitalization not to cause harm and also to benefit us as it holds huge potential. We would think of a similar kind like industrialization, improve all sectors, all aspects of uh, human life. Digitalization has similar uh, potential. I think about two decades back, the ethos of Silicon Valley were right. Uh, their ethos of move fast, break things, they were a counter power to the powerful incumbents in different sectors, starting from telecom to media, and also later on in areas like transportation, shopping, health, education, etc. So they were the counter power, but no longer. For last many years, they represent the, the power. They are the most powerful players, increasingly in all sectors. And therefore, uh, the ethos now is somewhat like leave things to us. You just take the services, you take the goodies, don't ask us questions, we know everything. And that's not what we believe. We think that these powerful forces should be in the hands of people, in the hands of communities, should be able to be influenced by regulators for public interest and so on. Yeah, when you move fast and break things, the third part isn't and take care of other humans along the way, is it? Absolutely. In one sense, it is okay to destroy the incumbents, but then you are not really looking at harm, as you say, right? So uh, IT for Change is working with the Midyear Network on some ambitious research focused on studying the data economy in the nine countries of the global south. Could you tell us more about that? So this project, uh, which is named uh, Unskewing the Data Value Chain, is about looking at how the digital economy is organized currently around the value of data uh, and how this value chain, the data value chain, which we see as different from the industrial value chain, and I would come to it 
presently, how it is organized, and what can be done so that digital value, the value from data, value from the intelligence derived from data is more fairly distributed. It is put to use for purposes which people really want uh, these things to be put to uh, use for. As you said, it's a nine-country project. Uh, these are developing countries. Uh, we are looking at how the value which comes from data and intelligence derived from data is put to best purposes, but also its value is equitably distributed. And we're looking at a range of policy options which regulators could have. Uh, these uh, range from traditional policy options in the area of uh, computation policy and taxation to new age digital policy options of data governments and uh, putting in the right digital infrastructure or as we call them, intelligence infrastructure. They range from the telecom infrastructure uh, to cloud computing, to basic applications which are available to everyone, uh, to data infrastructures and artificial intelligence infrastructure. So it's a multi-layer infrastructure. So how would you have the right kind of uh, digital infrastructure policies and data governance, which is the modern side of it and the old traditional competition policies as well as taxation policies. So how do we ensure that this new thing the digital economy is regulated in uh, the best possible manner uh, from a public interest uh, viewpoint. And increasingly, it is not the industrial giants who are at the top of global value chains, not even intellectual property giants. Those firms which control the data of a sector and the digital intelligence which comes from data of a given sector who are at the top of value chains, whether it's transportation, it's health, education, media, including industrial production. And these actors determine the whole value chain. So the, our effort is that the, the value chains are organized in a manner where the distribution of value is more fair. All countries are able to digitally industrialize at an, not an equal pace, but an equitable pace uh, and and there is a better distribution of uh, benefits from digitalization generally. So why those nine countries? What makes them more open? Or uh, why is this opportunity really there? And is it uh, one of those things where we can do it now before sort of the monopolies do set in? Actually, the choice was, was not uh, determined necessarily by which countries are at, in a position to be able to do it. I think the choice was more about the researchers available to do work in all those four areas I mentioned, competition policy, taxation policy, uh, digital infrastructures, and data governance. So we had an open call. We selected people. We did do a distribution, uh, a balance between Latin American countries, African countries, and Asian countries, the developing world. Uh, but in general, uh, it was not necessarily a choice of countries as where we could find good researchers uh, ready to, I mean, it was an open call where people responded uh, with uh, their uh, their proposals. And yes, it has a little to do with countries like, I mean, some countries have, have a better um, 
standing right now to be able to do something on the digital economy. But there's a balance between the choice of countries and the choice of researchers, actually. So when we think about the urgency of right now, um, wh- why is data sharing needed? And how can it actually help build an equitable digital economy? Data, as people have often been saying, the economist said it a few years back, but almost everybody says it now, is the main resource of a new digital economy. This data is valuable because it gives intelligence about whoever the data is about. It could be a person, and that data gives intelligence about that person, her behavior, her her friends, her occupation, everything, her health, or it could be about a bigger group, and that data gives intelligence about that particular community, that particular group. And that has become the most uh, valuable asset. Now, why should it uh, be be shared is because actually economics uh, says that there are two basic uh, requirements. One is of growth and other is of distribution. And generally, these are the two things which economics focuses on. Now, sharing of data both meets the imperative of growth and of distribution because if if the data is not locked up within silos and the data is available to all people in a sector, and as we know, data is a non-rival resource. It's not a material resource that if one uses it, the other can't use it. Uh, if all people can use the resource of data, obviously people can build value over it. And the overall value available to the world, to a country, increases manifold because the same asset is available to everyone. But right now, all people who have that asset, especially the big, large platforms, try to hold it, keep it to themselves and not make it available to others. Now, if everybody is sharing data, the size of the pie increases because people are able to have this huge resources. Like everybody who uses oil, which is the old major resource in the industrial economy, has now multiple times oil. But oil being a rival uh, commodity cannot be shared in the same way as data can be. And data can be used by others without diminishing the value of it for you. And this, of course, everybody knows. So first of all, what happens is the total pie of value increases. We have better health services, we have better education services, we have better agriculture services, everything. And second is that once data sharing starts, you don't have that kind of monopolies as we see today because most of these monopolies are based on exclusive access to the data which they collect. And that does not allow the the startups, the, the competitors to come up because the distance between those who have already collected the data and the ones who are starting to collect data is so huge that they're never able to cover up that distance. So if the data sharing takes place, there's also better distribution of economic power. Uh, and as I would probably come to later, if communities are owning that value, there is much better public interest control. So basically, we have a bigger pie of digital value overall, and the pie is distributed better if data sharing takes place. So it meets both the key imperatives of economics. Mm. Excellent. And and we know that um, the more data that's open and available, what is possible for innovation as well. So making people's lives better. The common uh, example given is GIS or spatial data coming down from satellites. This was a government project available. Data is now available for everyone. And where would Google Maps or Waze or any of us be 
without this common data set that is now available for everybody to use as they see fit. Now, of course, this is where the governance comes in, right? Because you want to be able to make sure that data is good and clean and updated and then in open and accessible formats. Yes. And in this case, the very important data infrastructure, the first big data infrastructure you rightly pointed to, out to uh, the global uh, GIS uh, data, uh, which was made available by the U.S. government to the world. So it was a public uh, agency which produced the data and by its own will made it available as a free uh, infrastructure to everybody. And without that much of uh, a lot, at least if not much, of uh, digital economy activities would not have been possible, including the big uh, digital player, Google. Now, the problem is that most of data is produced today over private platforms. These are the platforms like Google, Facebook, Uber, Amazon, uh, which provide digital services. And most of world's data gets gathered in the same process of providing a digital service the people who interact with those digital services leave their footprints, and that is the biggest data source. So these platforms act as data mines. And the problem is that these are private data mines, which keeps on entrenching the advantage of the incumbents, almost in a geometric uh, kind of uh, growth. Uh, and that, that's the reason uh, we see such monopolies in this area. Uh, the competitors simply have no chance because those who provide services daily get big new hordes of data using which they again provide better services and they get more data. And this data becomes now privatized. And that's the problem now. The first issue, and you were right talking about governance means about good data, the right kind of data, but that comes later. First of all, we need to get this data out of this private hordes of private platform companies and make it available to everybody. And then the issue comes about uh, the quality of data, it's the right kind of provisioning, uh, prevention of harm, uh, and those kind of uh, governance issues. But the first governance issue is how to get the data out of those private confines and make it generally available to everyone. And in that way, make a new kind of digital economy model where the main competitive advantage is not holding of data, but over shared data, your competitive advantage is how can you use shared data to provide the best AI or a best digital service? So, so your competitive advantage shifts. And currently, it is in holding data. And that is a major shift uh, which would solve a lot of uh, problems which are associated with digital economy. That's a phenomenal goal. So having that mind shift so it, it's better to share than it is to keep it for yourself it is certainly a, uh, a a challenge for most private companies who, you're right, want to hoard the data, keep it to themselves. But how do governments themselves catch up and understand that they need to partner with companies as well as um, intermediary non-government organizations to create this, this like trifecta? Of, of three organizations coming together for the greater good? The way you put the challenge is the right uh, way to frame that challenge. It 
does not have easy answers, but we need to start moving in that direction. And that is where the committee of which I am a member, the Indian Government Committee you mentioned, and whose recommendations uh, have come up as the second or an almost near final draft, uh, which introduces this concept of community, which is the third actor, actually. Uh, we have been talking about the problems of the data being with these private monopolies, but there's also the problem of data being with the state. And therefore, unlike in the case of uh, physical infrastructures of industrial era, where these big infrastructures were controlled by the state, there's also a problem of uh, whether all these data hoards, which are now brought out, let's say, by, by some uh, kind of illegal enforcement, uh, then who, who controls them? So first of all is to have some kind of a legal mechanism of getting that data, private data holds into a data commons. And what this committee does is institute, first time anywhere, a community's rights to its data, uh, which means that even if a private company is collecting health data about citizens of a city, a city the health data in its raw form without the derivatives in some way belongs to that common of that city. And that collective of that city can ask that raw data back by law. It's their common property. And that's the right two words you used at the start of data commons. So this is a legal force. It's not just voluntary, persuasive effort to tell companies, well, you know, you'll be better off if you share data, uh, which can only go that far. This committee recommends that since this data was taken from the community. Community has a right to its data. It doesn't stop you from using the data. You can carry on doing what you do. But certain data sets, which are considered of an infrastructural kind, will be required to be shared in a common pool. And once it is put into a common pool, then issue comes up, who governs them? And there are some community trustees, community structures, which are being talked about which are possibly at an arm length from control of the state over that data. That's it's really exciting. Um, as someone who's been involved in open data, especially for governments for um, a number of years, to have this kind of progress and this forward thinking come along is um, really optimistic and you know, really puts into to place that data in the aggregate Right, has the most opportunity for a collective good. So how can we seize on that and and actually make that promise to the collective good that we're going to use this data and that everyone can use this data? So what are some examples of like openly available non-personal data that in the future or maybe even now you could see everyone having access to, whether they're nonprofits or other technologists, to build new things or build non-technological you know, startups? Uh, I mean, let's say in the sector, health sector, there is data about uh, lung scans of uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, lung cancer patients, which is available with many hospitals, many health companies, which today keep that data and do a lot of analysis on that data to develop uh, many kinds of medical possibilities around lung cancer. Now, if all such data is available in a common pool, in an anonymized form, you understand what kind of patterns can emerge, first of all. First of all, the patterns which emerge in smaller silos 
are not that they, they can't be that good as the patterns which will emerge if all the data is put together. That's the first benefit. And second, now when all the data is put together, all kind of medical researchers are working on it. So A may make certain progress and B may make another progress. All of them working together on making medical progress uh, to, to treat uh, lung cancer is kind of an immediate multiple times gain, which you can see just because the health data has been shared in a non-personal uh, data form. Now, that is true even of transportation data. If all data about traffic conditions in a city, road conditions, uh, traffic density, events taking place in different parts of the city are all available in a common pool, then many kinds of transport services can be developed on the top of it. Right now, that data is largely available by one or two mega players who give transport services, who would therefore keep on adding more and more possibilities over their offerings because they are the only ones who can do it. And soon enough, they are the transport giant of a city or a country and you really can't do anything. Even a state uh, enterprise cannot meet uh, the, I mean, the might of that uh, digital transportation company. It's true with agriculture data, education data, any sector, once you put out data together, people can develop services on the top of it. And when we talk about people too, we also, by opening the data and creating it and putting it into this data common where anyone can access it, it's not just technologists, artists, teachers, anyone who has uh, an idea of what's possible with this data um, can, can look at ways to make the entire city better when you're looking at traffic data and, and perhaps crosswalks and safety. Um, but, Perminder, how do we both share the data and ensure privacy so everyone is is protected, whether it is um, the, the community or the government body, etc., so everyone's country can, can grow in this, this data open economy? So, yes, uh, again, these challenges would take many decades to finally be sorted out, but the right starts have to be made. And that's the kind of things uh, we were talking about, uh, the concept of community data, communities' right to get data into commons, setting up community trusts who set up data infrastructures as technical systems which provide uh, safe access to data. Uh, still. The kind of problems you're talking about, once you start doing things, there would be hundreds of possibilities. This committee's report already talked about how a community member can, you know, just say that certain uses of data uh, causes uh, community harm. And that group can go to a court and go to a non-personal data protection authority and prove that there is a possibility of harm. Uh, so those kind of possibilities are already mentioned at a concept level. But how exactly it gets done is an enormous challenge. Uh, I, I, I'm not uh, undermining or minimizing that uh, the enormousness of that challenge. But once you have the data, uh, data under control of community trusts, which are not neutral bodies, I think things uh, would uh, start sorting out. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say it's okay that it's an enormous challenge because look where we are now in just a few decades with internet technology, et cetera. So how about you tell us a little bit more about um, uh, the Government of India's Non-Personal Data Governance Act. What, what were the goals? How did you all come together to, to 
have a fair kind of idea in mind that that this country of India really needed to have something like this. The EU recently has its own draft government data governance act. So it was clear the time was now. Are you following the footsteps of the EU or are you saying regardless it's it's time for India to have its own start on this process that could take decades? Yes, good. You brought the European Data Governance Act, and they also have this Digital Markets Act, which has some data governance possibilities, uh, which are very promising. Uh, we have been engaging with it. Actually, just last week, I did a 12-pager response to the European process, which uh, was asking for feedback on the Data Governance Act. And in that paper, I compare the Indian approach and the European approach, and I find certain gaps in both. And interestingly, uh, the two complement them each, you know, each other quite well. Some of the gaps of the European approach are very well filled up by the Indian approach and vice versa. Uh, so that is interesting. Uh, and, and why and what motivated India to do start this kind of a thing is a similar motivation which Europe feels. Uh, countries outside US and China feel that they are fast losing out in the geopolitical and geoeconomic digital race. There's an increasing feeling that the world would become bipolar uh, between US and China and almost all global artificial intelligence will be at one of these two centers. And from these centers, the whole of the world uh, would be controlled economics of all sectors, but also social, cultural, and maybe political aspects. Now, that kind of fear motivates Europe. And you can read the statements of European leaders uh, about how they continually feel that they are going to be reduced to a third uh, world country status in the digital space. Uh, And countries like India, who do have certain IT prowess, uh, IT capabilities, but they do not own their own IT platforms. They see a possibility that if they take the right steps towards data governance and later on towards AI governance and other uh, digital infrastructures, they can have a proportionate place in the global digital economy. So that was a primary motivation for this committee's work. But of course, it was also the issue of prevention of collective harm to communities. Uh, Personal harm is often talked about. There are personal data protections. There are many kinds of collective harms which cannot be calibrated by individuals. So the concept of collective community harm, that was another motivation. So so these were the two motivations, but I would admit that the economic, geoeconomic motivation uh, was the stronger one to start this. Hmm. That's fascinating because you and your career have also worked so closely with the United Nations developing data governance. So how do we kind of back off this idea that it's an arms race and instead look at it as a community good and, and a reduction of community harms? Yes. Uh, at the global level, I think uh, nothing is perfect. United Nations is not perfect and everyone agrees to that. It is even less perfect uh, when states get together and decide things when we're talking about the digital and the internet, which is so new age. And also there is a problem of statist uh, data controls. Having said all these, the only globally democratic way to at least start talking about some collective norms. It's not that, you know, globally there would be a law 
uh, which will dictate what US does or India does. That's not the kind of work UN does. And it's not like UNESCO controls education in India or the US or even WHO controls health services. It helps countries to do those kind of things better. It develops some common norms, certain common thinking, some common values. And the similar kind of work needs to be done with a UN agency on digital governance. And we have been in this struggle for now at least 15 years. There was a World Summit on Information Society in 2005, which actually has a mandate to set up some kind of global platform for internet governance. That was the word at that time, but now we will talk about digital governance and data governance. But we do need a globally democratic UN-based system where discussions could take place, norms could de be developed. And we have been fighting for that. A lot of developing countries have been asking for a platform like that. Developed countries have tried to promote uh, private sector-led governance mechanisms in this area. But now, the last few years, EU has started to feel that private sector leadership or governance is not enough and and the state has to step in. I think even in the US, there is a bigger, greater recognition now uh, than earlier that you need state to come in also in this area. And uh, so we have been asking for some kind of a UN-based body looking at digital governance. Meanwhile, we also work with the WTO, we work with UN Conference on Trade and Development, we work with WHO, uh, we work uh, with food agriculture organization uh, with regards to data and digital issues which connect to the areas of work they do. So there's a lot of work that we do globally ourselves as IT for change and we are also part of a global coalition called Just Net Coalition which has organizations from all continents who also try to do these engagements and as we agree this is a long haul but we need to start uh, digging. Yeah because to bring it back to what this is about. It's about creating a fairer economy for people around the world. And we're not just talking about autonomous vehicles. We're also talking about access to food and water and health services and basic data needs that helps get those human needs to people. Yes, absolutely. Because when data is closer in control of communities and cities and states, and real people are able to take decision about what the data and intelligence coming out of the data would do, the kind of things you talked about gets prioritized. It's not necessary that we need to have a more shinier uh, telephone in our hands, which uh, improved uh, uh, camera every three months or six months. Sometimes the kind of things you talked about, food requirements, water, uh, climate change, these are the important things. And when these powerful digital resources of digital intelligence and data are in the hands of people and communities, then these decisions get taken. While we'll also be improving our transportation and we would like to have better phones in our hands, but then, then the decision taking about what is important for a society and community gets a little more democratized. And yes, uh, that, that these are the kind of things which would begin to happen if uh, the control of data and digital intelligence is put in the hands of uh, people and communities. Yeah, and that phrase, democratizing data, that's where you see the power of it and the strength of it and the whole purpose of it. 
So Perminder, when you think about the long row that we still have to go, what makes you optimistic about our data economy today and what's possible for the future? You know, optimism comes from uh, the righteousness of people, of politicians and businesses all. I mean, there is much better understanding today than it was five years back even that there is a need of regulation. There is a need of decentralization of power, more distributed digital models. Uh, So I think uh, sometimes the pace at which the problems grow as they have been growing in the digital area also helps precipitate uh, things. And I do see, and you have been talking about the kind of data governance work happening in the EU and some now in developing countries like India, this gave uh, us optimism that uh, society would take control of the future and just not accept the big tech's formula of leave things to us. You just enjoy the goodies. Uh, that phase, I think, is over. Parminder Singh, thank you so much for joining us today on the Business Lab. Thank you so much, Robert. It was uh, my pleasure to be talking to you. That was Parminder Singh, the Executive Director of IT for Change, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of the Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Rumi. I'm the Director of Insights, the Custom Publishing Division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can also find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. The show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.